Hey everyone, it's Jim Wilson here with some great news. The next Great Big Ideas Summit that's taking place at the Hamilton Convention Center on Monday, October 2nd is now just a few weeks away. The industry leaders who will be joining us on stage includes Brigitte Nollet from Roche Canada Pharma, Michael May of CCRM, Nahid Kurji of Recursion Canada, and Gordon McCauley from Admari Bioinnovations. To find out more about our speakers and to purchase your tickets, you can go to nextgreatbigideas.com. Now, because we've been focused on the summit, this week we are reposting one of our most popular interviews, which was with Dr. Maura Campbell from the Ontario Bioscience Innovation Organization. Before we get to our conversation, we'd like to thank the TMX Group and the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation for their support. We would also like to thank our major sponsors that include Edmari Bioinnovations, OmniaBio, Bay Area Health Trust, Eurofins CDMO Alfora, Facet, Nova Nordisk, Synapse Life Sciences Consortium, Walter Fady, X-Design, and Lab Occupier. Our interview with Mora was recorded earlier this year, and we hope you enjoy it. It's so funny. The one thing I've never wanted to be was a CEO. I always wanted to be the right-hand person to the CEO, but not the CEO themselves, because it was just the pressure of fundraising is a lot. Maura Campbell, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Jim. How are you? I'm well. I hate talking about myself. That's the point of this podcast, so. There you go. Thank you so much for making the time and agreeing to do this. I appreciate it. You were born in Ottawa, and you have two brothers, and we'll talk about your siblings in a moment. But first, I'd appreciate talking about your parents, if that's okay. I understand your mother was a nurse, and you were born just as your dad was retiring from the military. I would appreciate you telling us about them both. Can we start with your mom? What was her name? My mom's name was Mary Catherine Callahan, so you can guess that she was idle. <laughs> she went by Kelly for short. She was a nurse. She actually trained at Hotel Du in Kingston. That's where she started, but she was born and raised in Belleville. Is she still with us? or No, my mom and dad both passed away about 15 years ago now. I'm sorry for your loss. So she nursed in Ottawa. So she was a nurse originally in Belleville and in Kingston. And then when we were kids, mom was part of what was called the nurse's registry. And so she uh, was a private duty nurse. She would do night shifts. So she would work all night and then come home, get us breakfast, get us to school, bring us home for lunch. I don't know when she slept. She never slept. Get us dinner and then went to work at 11 o'clock at night. I think I'm seeing a genetic connection here, figuratively and literally, and a work ethic that shines through you. Your father was in the Air Force, and what was his name? Dad's original name was Natali Pasquale Gerardo Simboli, and he changed it to George Patrick when he was in the Air Force. <laughs> we don't know where George came from. I think it was the most British name you could think of. <laughs> and why did he do that? So when he was growing up, he was born and raised in Montreal, and he's one of seven. Half the kids are born in Italy, half the kids are born in Canada. And it was during fascism. They didn't want to be identified as Italian, so he really wanted to be as assimilated Canadian as possible. I think he just created the name himself, and then he legally had to change it when he was in the Air Force because he'd been identifying as George Patrick 
instead of his real name, which was on his birth certificate. Wow. And what did he do in the military? I understand he was in the Air Force. When he retired, he was flight lieutenant, which I think is the equivalent of captain in the tri-service. Dad was always the accounting guy, bookkeeper, accountant, financial guy. So he ran things and he ran our house the same way, budgets, lists. And... Your dad was Italian, your mom was Irish. How did they meet? They met, I can't even remember now. It was during the war. So there was a lot of nurses and the enlisted men would meet a lot at social gatherings. I guess he was in the Air Force when the Avro Arrow was canceled by the Diefenbaker government in 1959. Did he ever talk about that? He never talked a lot. What I do, and this was before I was born, the Cuban crisis. I remember that. He was part of that and had to be around, had to be available in case anything happened. He enlisted when he was 17, and it was during the Second World War. And he enlisted because he thought he would get to go to Europe. And he ended up being stationed at a, a base down the street from where he lived. <laughs> he was a bit disappointed in that. And he enlisted before he figured the draft was coming. So he enlisted early. He, dad only had a high school education. It was hard. He was one of seven kids. His father ran a number of businesses in Montreal, you know, restaurants, delis, all the kind of things Italian people do. And the kids all worked in these. So it was hard to do school. School was not valued. I think dad was the only one of seven that finished high school. He left or retired from the Air Force and had another career, didn't he? He did. There's a building contractor, Minto. They're pretty well known. He became financial officer at Minto. And then from there, he went to the Ottawa City Hall. And from Ottawa City Hall, he went to the Ottawa Fire Department and always in an accounting mm -hmm. and bookkeeping role. So both of your parents very accomplished and sounds like they instilled some things in you. You and I do know one another a little bit and I can now see a thread <laughs> through this conversation that sticks out in a very good way and that's fabulous. Where exactly did you grow up in Ottawa? First five years of my life, I was down on Argyle Street, which is right downtown and across from the Museum of Man. The house doesn't even exist anymore. It was Air Force housing. And what was attached to it was a thing called Beaver Barracks, and that's where all of the single enlisted men were. So we were in the family compound. There were three families in this massive house. We were on the ground floor, and then the two other families had apartments above us. We used to go into Beaver Barracks. They'd give us treats and pop, and they'd pat our dogs. And <laughs> it was an interesting life. It was kind of like a mini little military base. Were you an active kid? Pretty active. My oldest brother was a lot older. He was eight years older than I was. And my youngest brother was only 15 months younger than me. He was crazy. <laughs> so you were the middle child. I googled what the characteristics are of a middle child. May I read what I found? Probably bang on. <laughs> middle children are good at being mediators and they strive for fairness. They're also trustworthy friends who work well as a team members. Oh, I would agree with that. I, I was the peacemaker. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up in a Canadian military household. What was that like? So my dad was typical military. I mean, we had chores and we had lists. Dad ran us like a military family. We all became like that. My youngest brother and I still, we walk around houses and we straighten pictures. Can't get rid of that crazy military aspect. Nothing's out of order. <laughs> 
And in many respects, that's a good thing. Do you think you're more like your mom or your dad? More like my dad. Oh, yeah. Okay. You were born just before he retired, which meant that you didn't have to move from school to school when the family was going from place to place. And looking back, do you think that was an opportunity lost or a benefit gained? So my oldest brother went through them, you know, moving of Trenton, Toronto, Ottawa. Not crazy, but I think for a lot of military kids, it's hard. They almost don't want to make best friends or anything because you know you're going to be moving in two years. So my youngest brother and I were kind of saved from that. Dad retired when I was five and my youngest brother, Chris, was four. So we didn't have to go through moving at all. We had one move in our life when we left the family compound there on Argyle and, and moved out to the suburbs when dad retired. I'd, I'd like to talk about your brothers for a moment. I understand your older brother has a PhD in psychology and he works with the Youth Services Board in Ottawa. And your younger brother is a licensing lawyer in the tech industry. What does a licensing lawyer do? Chris does almost the same job I did in life sciences, except in technology, like high tech. I always call it high tech. That's I'm showing my age, but basically, you know, computer science, telecommunications, things like that. And is he also in Ontario? No, he's down in Boise, Idaho now. Ah, okay. Your older brother has a PhD. Your, your younger brother is a lawyer, and you're the CEO of one of the most important biosciences organizations in Canada. It sounds like education was an important part of growing up in your household. My parents, particularly my dad, really valued education, and we were supported all the way through. We did not have to have jobs. Dad paid tuition, and so as long as we wanted to go to school, we went to school. He supported us the whole way. A lot of kids now come out with significant student loans. We did not have to go through that. So I really appreciate what my parents did for us there. Wow. I read that one of your uncles once made a joke about your home having nine university degrees, three kids, and only one job. Yeah, because only one of us was working at the club. <laughs> In the greater family, your education was maybe frowned upon a bit? Not Fred, probably. As I said, dad was one of seven, and of them, two of his siblings did not have kids. You know, of the five families, we were the only ones, I think, that went to university, but we're definitely the only ones that got graduate degrees and, and went on. I'd like to talk about high school for a moment. I'm going to go out on the limb here and guess you were not near the academic bottom of your classes. No, I pretty high up, but I was never the top person because I liked everything. So I never excelled at one subject. I liked a lot of different subjects. So, you know, I was always in the top three to five in my class, but never the top one. <laughs> <laughs> and you liked English and history. History is the path I followed. But in grade 11, you were introduced to chemistry and I read it was like something went off in your mind. Could you tell us about that? I think it was organic chemistry, which most people hate with a passion. I loved it. Carbohydrate chemistry, organic chemistry, you know, I really, really just loved it. And when I took the chemistry in grade 11, I just, I turned a corner and never looked back at the arts after that. You had a grade 13 biology teacher who had a significant influence on you. Can you tell us about him? He taught almost like a first-year biochem course, and that's what really got me is, you know, I liked some aspects of biology and I liked some aspects of chemistry, but the combination of biochemistry and, you know, everything about the cell and all the formulas and equations and you know, metabolic sequences, like I just ate that up. That's really when I decided I wanted to go into biochemistry. 
So you graduated high school in 1980 and went to Queen's University in Kingston to start your Bachelor of Science in Biochemistry. Why did you choose Queen's? You know, I can't even remember now. You know, I applied to a lot of different universities. I knew I wanted to go away to university, and I think I didn't want to go too far away. I think part of that was Queen's, but I absolutely loved Kingston and Queen's. It's got a real mystique to it, the campus and everything. It was about 10,000 students when we were wasn't massive and it's right there on Lake Ontario and I was a runner. I just loved it. I was at a meeting at Queen's just last month and hadn't been on campus for longer than I care to admit. And I would absolutely agree with you. It is a beautiful campus and Kingston still has an, an even better vibe today. And there's a lot of cool stuff going on in Kingston. What was it like attending Queen's as a woman at that time? Were there many women in the course or in the faculty at that time? So we were a super small class. I think I was 16 that made it all the way to fourth year. But there was only one female in the Department of Biochemistry at the time, and she ran the undergraduate lab, so she did not have a research program. So it was completely male-dominated. So it was interesting. But in my class, I don't know if we were half female, but we had a good four or five women in my graduating class. I read that you tutored medical school and nursing students while you were doing your undergrad. Yes, I did. And unilaterally, medical students and nursing students hate biochemistry. <laughs> don't know why. They hate it. And they were my rich pool of students to tutor. So. And it gave you some spending money on the side. You were also heavily involved in something else at this time that got you fairly well-known in the Kingston area. I understand you're an avid runner. Yes. So I was in Kingston for seven years between my undergraduate degree and my master's, and I never had a car there. I was a runner, marathons, and triathlons, so I did start to dabble in the triathlons, which also brought in the cycling and the swimming. And so I was well-known because I was always out running, walking, swimming, biking. I would run to go get groceries. I would run to the bank. I would run to the laundromat. Like I was, I was known for running to get places in Kingston that I could get from one end to the other. Now, just before we started recording, we were chatting about you were running this morning. I, I got asked, how far did you run this morning? Make me feel bad. So I'm old now. I know I'm not in 5K, but do other things. So usually when I get up in the morning, I run, I bike, and then I walk. I'm usually out for about two hours. I'm a bit of a crazy person that way. Well, good for you. Have you ever tried an ultra marathon? No. You're not that crazy. Four six miles was long enough. <laughs> I also read that you would get up during your time at Queen's and you'd do training, you'd go to class, and then you'd come home and you'd jump on your bike. And how far would you go? When I decided to start doing the Kingston triathlons, which are called the Tin Man. They're not the Iron Man. They're the Tin Man because it's a half of the Iron Man. <laughs> That's clever. We ran at 5.30 in the morning so that we could see the sun come up. Like, we would run out around RMC, which is the Royal Military College. It's spectacular to run this LaSalle Causeway and then out around RMC. And then work all day in the lab, try to fit a swim in, usually at noontime in the pool. And then in the evenings, we would, and there was usually more than one person trying to do the triathlon, we would bike from Kingston to Gananoque way and back, which is about a 50-mile bike ride. So that was part of our training. One way. I think it's return. I'm still in awe of the ambition and the commitment. Hi, it's Jim. 
We hope you're enjoying today's show and would like to remind our listeners NGB Ideas is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, which is an in-person speakers event being held in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. The NGBI Summit invites leaders, innovators, and disruptors from coast to coast to discuss what their sector is focused on, what their companies are doing, what next great big ideas are on their horizon, and introduces the next generation of Canadian startups who are working on those ideas. At the end of the day, NGBI is a networking event where attendees will meet industry leaders, startups, executives, investors, academics, and members of the general public who share an interest in Canada's life sciences community. For details about our speakers and to purchase tickets, please go to www.nextgreatbigideas.com. Where did your love of running come from? I actually don't even know. Again, I started running when I was like 13 or 14. I quickly went to distance running. I just loved distance running. I would run, you know, upwards of 10 miles. Then when I was doing the marathons, we would run 20 miles regularly. I think it was just I used to think a lot when I was running and plan out talks and and doing just different things like that. Did you compete in high school or university? I competed locally, but not in school. So you finished your BSc in 1984 and did your Master's of Science immediately after that, also at Queen's. Was this path circumstantial or, or intentional? Were you thinking your career path at that point was to be teaching at the university level or was it just, eh, whatever? You know, I was a good student. I liked university life. It was fun. Like, I just loved the fact that I could run and have my own schedule and all that. And I think when I graduated my undergraduate degree, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I thought, whatever, I'll do a master's. And then the same thing happened at the end of the master's. I thought, well, this is better than getting a job. So <laughs> yeah, I just enjoyed being in school and enjoyed like everything about it. Now, I did start to get weary of it by the end of the PhD. By that point, what else is there? <laughs> if you don't mind, I'd like to touch on a difficult part of your life that happened during your master's. You were in a very bad car accident and had to take a leave of absence. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I'd come back to Ottawa. In addition to doing the running and everything, I taught aerobics and exercise class just to do something else. And um, I was on my way to that. It was a kind of a rainy night and we pulled out from a uh, corner where which was blinded and got smoked by a car coming the other way. Because I was in such good physical shape, I didn't get as much injuries as I could have. Like I had no damage to my legs or anything, but I was pinned in the car. But I had full separated shoulder, a lot of contusions and cracked cheekbone, divot out of my chin. Like, so it took a lot. Sorry, you said we. Was there someone else in the car? My fiance at the time, soon to be my husband, was driving. And, you know, like I say, we pulled out and we were completely blind and didn't see the car coming and, and they hit us on my side. But they hit at the wheel hub, not right at the door. So I think that kind of saved me. That must have been a, a life-defining moment. Yeah, it was. Because of the shoulder injury, I couldn't run. And it was my right hand. In those days, you know, we were still doing a lot of writing. I was trying to finish my thesis, so it was a bit of a struggle. We used to take out books. We didn't look on the internet, right? We had these massive chemistry and biochem books we'd take out and be using those to break the background for our thesis and everything. So 
it was a bit of a challenge to get everything done, right? You know, not having my right arm. So you finished your master's and decided to go back home to Ottawa, where you entered the University of Ottawa in 1989 for a PhD in biochemistry. Why Ottawa? Because my parents were still there, my brothers were there, and I thought I had had my stint at Queen's. And in those days, they didn't encourage you to do more than one graduate degree at a university. They wanted you to have other experiences. And Ottawa had a fairly strong biochem program. And so I thought, okay, I'll come back to Ottawa. So the parents were glad to have you back after what you went through. It was probably great to be there, I'm sure. So you were there from 1989 to 1993. What was your time at the University of Ottawa like compared to your time at Queen's? On day one, I came in and I was so amazed at how many women were in the program, particularly at the professorial level. So there were two women that had really huge research operations, Dr. Hemshagen and a Dr. Bejan Hike, and they were phenomenal role models for any of the females that were in the PhD program. And that was really new for me because we didn't have that at Queen's at the time. There were really no full professors that were actually running full research programs. If my math is correct here, while you were in your PhD program, you got married and you mentioned your husband earlier. Who is he? My husband's name is Peter Campbell, and he was a high school teacher that became a vice principal. And how did you meet? We met, I think, to my youngest brother's girlfriend somehow. I can't even really remember now. <laughs> Peter's one of four boys. Yeah, She knew Peter and his brothers, and we met at some social event when I was finishing my master's. You got married, you're in your PhD program, and you became pregnant with your first son. How was that viewed at the time by your peers? Yeah. So I remember asking, like, what happens now, you know, going to HR and saying, what happens now? And they're like, well, we don't know. We've never had a grad student pregnant. I was in the lab and I was working with radioactivity. So we went through all this health and safety stuff where they're like, we're going to put a lead apron on you, which weighs 30 pounds. And they're like, who would have fall over? I have 30 pounds in my stuff. They really didn't know how to handle it or what to do. So, you know, you just kind of muddled through and I had to get bigger lab coats because I became fairly large <laughs> and uh, waddling around in the lab. Well, talk about being the tip of the spear. They'd never had anyone in that situation before. Not during the time that they were in the lab as a graduate student. And so no one really knew what the path forward was. So you're in third year of your PhD, had a baby, you're finishing up your lab work, you're writing your PhD thesis, and you're nursing as well, was maternity leave an option? So it really wasn't because you were a student. So I remember I was home for four months, but I would go back in for lab meetings because I didn't want to fall too far behind. I didn't have any extension for my thesis. So when Justin was four months old, I went back into the lab to finish off the last of my experiments so I could start to write my thesis. I was only off four months. I'm sitting here thinking I'm pretty full of male privilege at the moment, and I cannot imagine how difficult that time of your life must have been just trying to stay on top of everything. In retrospect, I should have just enjoyed the four months off, but you're so afraid of falling behind. So I was writing fellowship applications and scholarship applications. Justin was a very good baby. He was very easy. He slept through the night at eight weeks. 
So I was able to do it, but it, it was stressful. I mean, I remember writing my thesis with one foot on a travel tender, just like rocking it back and forth <laughs> to get, get one more chapter done before you would wake up. Wow. And then you were pregnant with your second child fairly soon after that, and you had your third child in fairly quick succession. You were a pretty busy person. One of the people that I've probably worked with the most in my life, his name is John Bell. He's well known in, in Ottawa and in Canada and, and everywhere. He said, all he remembers is that I was just pregnant all the time. You <laughs> <laughs> were the pregnant one. You always had this big lab coat on. <laughs> Didn't see that one going. So you graduated with a PhD in biochemistry and, and you were looking at doing postdocs. And it sounds like this was a bit of a crossroad in your life. You knew you did not want to do lab work and you knew you wanted to have more kids. So what did you do? So I got together with another person. Her experience was almost even more career altering than mine. She was a career research scientist at the NRC, and she had thought, okay, I'm far enough along on my career, I can have a kid now and this will all work out. She still, I always laugh at this, she, she and her husband were at the first ultrasound and he said, there's a lot of legs and arms there. <laughs> <laughs> she was pregnant with triplets. Wow. I always say I had three kids the old fashioned way, one at a time. She had triplets, she never went back in the lab. So her and I got together and formed a little bit of a partnership. And we did grant writing. From that, I kind of went off on my own. And once the grants were written and they were funded, they needed people to manage the project. So I started to do project management. And that's kind of how I cut my teeth in consulting and startups. I understand one of your clients got $8 million in grant funding through four different programs. And their head of research who lived in Montreal realized that somebody had to manage the process and that created an opportunity. Yeah. And so I got engaged by the company was called Neurochem and Neurochem became Bellis Health and Bellis Health just recently was acquired. They needed someone that could do extramural research program management. So there was a program at Queens. So that was great. I was going back to my alma mater. And then there was a program at, in Toronto as well, a diabetes program. And then there was another program out in Edmonton. And it was the Edmonton Protocol, which was that type 1 diabetes stem cell transplantation project. So I was the extramural project manager for those three projects for Neurochem. Reading about this time in your life, it sounds like the job was kind of self-taught. And it also opened up some other windows for you around intellectual property and license agreements. That's correct. So I wrote industry program grants. And then when the grant was funded, we ran the project and the project, you know, inevitably led to intellectual property. So I learned everything there was about patents and filing patents. I had to negotiate the contracts with the university and with any external vendors. So it really helped me kind of get experience in what I would go on to do in startup companies. So in 2001, you joined the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute as their first ever manager of technology transfer and commercialization. That must have been a pretty exciting time in your career. Yeah. So we had done, again, everything was serendipity in my career pretty well. I'd just meet people and they'd say, hey, you this? Oh, great. Join our team. So I met a woman who had been basically doing some tech transfer for the Ottawa Hospital. We'd done an 18-month maternity leave replacement for one of the centers of excellence programs called IRIS. It was the Intelligent Systems and Robotics. 
So we'd done this 18-month replacement there and kind of played the tech transfer office for that. And then the Ottawa Hospital wanted to commit to a tech transfer contract. So four of us got together. I was the scientist with the IP and the contracts background. We had a lawyer. We had the woman that had originally we'd replaced on maternity leave in the Robotics Institute join us. She was an engineer. And then the fourth person was MBA business development. And so we created the first office for tech transfer at the Ottawa Hospital, which we did on contract for like a couple of years. And while you were there, you met two researchers who were serial entrepreneurs, John Val and Mike Widnecki. Could you tell us a bit about them? Yeah. So I still remember Mike's first company was called StemPath and Genesis Capital was investing at the time. They were a brand new VC group at that time and they invested in StemPath. Mike was the CSO, I think. And I remember we incorporated that company on like a Christmas Eve. It was crazy. Driving around, trying to get signatures and, and starting it all up. Since then, Mike's done a lot more successful companies, but that was the start. You were one of the first generation of academics to occupy the role of manager of tech transfer. Why was that position created? Why didn't it exist sooner? I think just people were so set that research was research, and there was only a handful of researchers and profs that would have thought of spinning out, filing IP, spinning out a company. Like It was just such a new area for everybody. But there were definitely people like Mike Recknicki and John Bell that were doing it, and I kind of gravitated towards them, helped them out, learned a lot along the way, had a lot of laughs. We had no idea what we were doing. So <laughs> when we were successful, we were like, we have no idea why we were successful. Like <laughs> it, was, it was one of those things. So riding the wave. Yeah, riding the wave. Before we continue, I've got a question about IP that I'd like to run by you. I'm not a lawyer and I don't have your experience and expertise, but I had someone say to me recently that Canadian IP laws are weaker in comparison to U.S. laws, and it's one of the factors that encourages scaling startups to leave Canada. Do you think there's any merit to that comment? Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't think it has to do with the laws being weaker. I think it's more funding that's the issue. Most companies, with respect to their IP, file U.S. first, but part of that is because it's a bigger market. We often leave Canada to the end. It's not because the laws are weaker. I don't really see how that fits with this. I mean, it really comes down to the companies. They just need more funding support to stay in Canada and they're not getting it. You know, there's not enough investment for the scaling companies and the more U.S. investors you get, the harder it is to keep your footprint in Canada. It's just inevitable. Although I feel like we are doing ourselves a disservice to say it's inevitable and that we need to start to think creatively about how to change that and how to actually convince U.S. investors that keeping the company in Canada is actually very advantageous. We would like to pause for a few moments to let our listeners know why this podcast exists. Officially, NGB Ideas was created to help promote the Canadian Life Sciences Innovation Summit, Next Great Big Ideas, which is taking place in Hamilton this October. But that's not the whole story. Our podcast and the NGBI Summit have been created to support McMaster Children's Hospital, which is one of the top critical care pediatric hospitals in Canada. Cards on the table, I'm a member of the board of directors of the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, 
And while we are hoping to raise awareness about all of the cool things going on in the Canadian life sciences sector, what we're really doing is trying in our small way to help McMaster Children's Hospital save young lives. And we're very thankful the great team at Mac Kids does that every day. If you're interested in helping us support Mac Kids, please feel free to contact me, Jim Wilson. I'll be happy to help set up a meeting with a staff member of the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, and we will welcome your support. You can find out more about McMaster Children's Hospital by visiting hamiltonhealth.ca slash maccids. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to our show. You were at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute from 2001 until 2009, and from 2004 to 2009, you were also Director of Intellectual Property at Pain Scepter Pharma Corporation. How did that play out? Ottawa Hospital was 2001 to 2004, and then in 2004, I was approached by two people that had formed a company called Pain Scepter Corporation, which was all about neuropathic pain, small molecule therapeutics. And they had formed Pain Scepter from two startups, one out of McGill University called Intalium and one out of Queen's University called Neuroceptor. So they took the two startups, combined them into a single company. Both startups had two different platforms for peripheral pain. The Antalium platform was acid-sensing ion channel inhibitors, and the Neuroceptor platform was nerve growth factor inhibitors. And that was a company called Neurochem? When they got together? No, that company was called Pain Scepter. But actually, the people that had been the CEO and the chief business officer for Neurochem formed Pain Scepter. That's how I joined Pain Scepter. And then in 2009, you joined VBI Vaccines. Yes. So Pain Scepter was a casualty of the 2008 market meltdown. We had phase one clinical product that worked and was safe. We had lots of backup compounds that would have had different applications, but we could not secure a Series B financing. And so we wound down operations. I think I was like the last employee. I remember pleading with our CEO to please let me go so that I could find another job because the market was so bad in 2008. Companies were dying everywhere and People that got let go early got jobs, and anybody that was hung on to companies because they were valuable were almost at a disservice because that last pool trying to find employment. I think it was BLG, Borden, Ladner, Gervais was the law firm that I was working with when I was at Pain Scepter, and they said that they had another client company that really could use in-house IP management. And they introduced me to the CEO and chief business officer for VBI vaccines, which at the time was called Variation Technologies. And then in 2011, you had a meeting with John Bell, who you mentioned earlier, about a company called Turnstone Biologics. Before we talk about Turnstone, could you explain to our listeners who John Bell is? So John and his accomplices, Dave Stoidel, grinds out of McMaster University, and Dave is Children's Hospital, Eastern Ontario. They were pioneers in the oncolytic virus space. John's entire career has been on developing oncolytic viruses as therapeutics. And Brian and Dave are actually his grad students and have gone on to really good careers as well. So when I met them, BBI was struggling a little bit. And I did a little bit of consulting work with them and helped them find, I think it was a million seed from Facet. I helped do the application and we got that 
funding. And that's kind of how we started. Now, we were at Turnstone at the time. We were just like a project that was running a clinical trial and we ran it out in the Ottawa hospital. We didn't even have office space. And I had two grad students working for me, both of who went on to be employed by Turnstone, Julia Pomeransky and Chantal LeMay, who is now Chantal Martin. They finally found us like a storage closet. So there was three of us working in a storage closet, had no windows. We'd come out at the end of the day like moles thinking, what, there's light? A lot was literally the start of Turnstone is the three of us. They were both grad students at the time and myself working in this little tiny room. And we put together a phase one clinical trial. We put together GNP facility, got it proved, validated, up and running, produced clinical product, filed IP, managed external vendors and did it all out of this tiny little room at the Ottawa Hospital. And that was 12 years ago. Yeah. So it was 2011 to 2014. We ran that program with funding from Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. And that in 2014, we actually incorporated the company Turnstone and got seed funding. I'm wondering how many of people listening to this are thinking, wow, 12 years ago, you were working out of a broom closet and we are too. And it's 12 years later, and we still haven't solved this problem, which is something else that we'll touch on shortly. So you were at Turnstone for seven years from 1415 until 2022. And in February of 2022, you became president and CEO of Obio, the Ontario Bioscience Innovation Organization. And I understand that it's an interesting story about perhaps being in the right place at the right time, and most importantly, being more than qualified. I'd appreciate you sharing the story of how you ended up at Obio. So Adam Buckley, who I knew from VBI Vaccines, he volunteered me to sit on the Obio board when I was still at Turnstone. And so I became a board member. I, I can't remember what year it was. And then the, the next year, the chairman of the board retired, went on to other things. And the then CEO, Gail Garland, asked if I would assume chairman of the board. I think they wanted to have a female chairman. I said, yes. So I was chairman of the board. And then a year after that, Gail had contacted me as chairman and said, you know, I think I'd like to retire and move on. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. Do we bring someone up from within? Do we do a search? At the time, the inkling for Turdstone was things were starting to, as previous companies, creep south of the border. And so I knew if I didn't want to move to the U.S., which I didn't, that it was going to be inevitable that Canadian operations for Turnstone were going to be slimmed down. So I said to Gail, I might be interested, but I'll, I'll recuse myself. I think you should still do a cert. I don't know if I'm the best candidate or not. I basically want you to do a regular search and just have me interviewed and go through our regular process. And so that's what we did. And then I think it was in December of 2021 they had decided that they would engage me as the next CEO. Obio was founded in 2009, and in my mind, and I'm sure in the minds of many, it's become one of the key organizations in the Canadian life sciences community. I'd appreciate you taking a few moments from a 30,000-foot view to explain to our listeners what Obio is all about. It was founded in 2009 by Gail Garland. So Gail was the founder and the CEO for almost 13 years. Her vision was at the time, there was a need for an organization that talked for the little guy, right? So there was organizations that were very vocal for big pharma, but our area that we wanted to really 
provide a voice for was the smaller companies that were the startups, financing, struggling. They needed an organization that was looking out for their best interests as well. And Gail had the vision to see that. And it was tough in the early days for her. I know that they didn't have a lot of funding. They had a lot of pressure to just join the bigger pharma organizations. But Gail persevered. I hear all the time companies going like, you really do things that help us. That's really what Obio is all about, is really to support the little startup companies in any way that we can. So we're not-for-profit, membership-based. We engage in strategy, programming, policy development, and advocacy to further the commercialization of Ontario's health science companies. And we're really trying to position Ontario as a leader in the life science innovation. I would say we're very heavy on programming. We run a lot of programming. We do it under three different pillars, capital access, workforce development, and technology adoption. And under these pillars, we run one or two different programs that really help companies get financing that they need, help them build their workforce and train their workforce, and get the technologies adopted and procured by healthcare organizations. Is membership open to anyone? Membership is open to anyone. We have a small membership fee, pretty trivial by comparison, I think, to some of the other organizations. For that, companies get access to grants, to funding, to training, to a lot of programming, webinars. We're very active trying to always deliver things that are meaningful for the companies. I appreciate the overview. Where will Obio be in five years? We're dabbling a little bit with some of our programs, having a national scope. But for now, we're really trying to be the best we can be in Ontario. Our Early Adopter Health Network program, which is our technology adoption program, because there's not a lot of programs like it in other provinces, we are getting companies reaching out, particularly because we have a network of over 50 healthcare organizations in Ontario. Ontario is a huge group of healthcare organizations, so a lot of -of out-of-province companies would like access to our network. So we're starting to dabble with that program having a bit more national scope. So you've been CEO for just over a year. How did the COVID pandemic affect the organization? Every organization, every company, we are all working from home. It was a very disseminated organization, I'd say, just like Turnstone as well, right? At Turnstone, we had just leased office space in Ottawa, and then within three months, I'd shut it down. So we were sitting on 10,000 square feet of brand new retrofitted office space that nobody was going into, like literally myself and one other person were showing up. Similar, Obio had a lot of people working from home. Over the course of the year, more and more people were starting to come back into the office. Now we have a policy new 60% of the time is spent in the office, working with each other, and we're going to be moving into new space in the fall, which will be nice. So currently we're in the old Banting building, but we'll be moving into the new SRIC building come August, September, hopefully. What is it you like most about your job? What I like most is just the interaction with companies. I learned so much with the previous companies I've been with. Things to do, things not to do. I really enjoy sharing that knowledge with other companies and helping them understand and how to grapple. You know, a lot of our companies are grappling with the cross-border issues. I learned so much from Turnstone of what we did and what we could have done differently. And I really try to share that knowledge with a lot of the companies that are dealing with the same thing. They need sales in the U.S. They need an entity in the U.S. They're getting U.S. investors. How to deal with all that and still try to keep your Canadian footprint. 
Have you encountered any surprises, positive or negative, that you can share? It's a tough year financing-wise. Definitely have seen a couple surprises. I'm not going to name names, but things that have happened which surprised me. But the reasoning is it's a tough year to be raising money. Last year was tough. This year is even tougher. The only thing I will say is because I've been around long enough, it's peaks and valleys with life science financing. I've seen worse times previously that we resurrected from and then we had 2020 and early 2021 life science companies were IPOing with nothing and doing massive IPOs. There's always this leveling effect, right? I just think we're in a real trough right now. It is going to get better. And the difference I see this time versus like 2008, which was horrible, is I remember our CEO at the time going to JP Morgan in San Francisco, which is the epitome of financing meetings for life sciences in the US. And he said you could have bowled there in 2008. Like literally, there was nobody there. This has been a hard market. You know, SVB collapsed. A lot of things have happened, but JP Morgan was hopping. Bio is going to be hopping. Like people are out and about, people are meeting. So things are going to happen. It's just riding out this wave of a tough year for financing. That's a great segue into my next question. I understand you consider yourself a pessimistic optimist. What do you mean by that? I prepare for the worst, but I see the best happening. That's why I usually have a plan A, a plan B, plan D. In case this one falls through, in case this one falls through, I don't count my chickens before they hatch. I'm always very low-key. I don't get too optimistic about anything. But a fundamental, I'm an optimistic, upbeat person, but I always am very, very cautious about not getting too excited about things until they happen. That's a good way to be. Hi, it's Jim. We hope you're enjoying today's show and would like to remind our listeners, NGB Ideas is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. NGBI is an in-person speakers event being held in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. The summit is bringing together leaders, innovators, and disruptors from coast to coast to provide updates on what their companies are doing, what next great big ideas are on their horizon, and introduce the next generation of startups in Canada who are working on those ideas. At the end of the day, NGBI is a networking event where attendees will meet industry leaders, startups, investors, academics, students, and members of the general public who share an interest in Canada's life sciences community. For details about our speakers and to purchase tickets, please go to www.nextgreatbigideas.com. We all have a few things, maybe three events, three moments in our lives that have steered us to follow the path that we end up on. Are there three defining moments that you think aligned in your life to get you to where you are today? I would say that grade 13, having the teacher that taught biochemistry, that really hooked me because I could have gone a different way. I loved history and liked English as well. So there was a lot of different paths I could have taken, but I think that is really what turned me to biochemistry. And then I would definitely say basically having three kids in five years made me rethink whether I wanted to do an academic career or not and put me on that path of startup companies and working as a consultant and having no idea what I was doing, taking a big risk and getting off that academic career path and just starting to work for companies. I mean, it's not like we were taught that 
during our PhD, we didn't even know companies existed. <laughs> All we knew is what we were studying. A couple of companies in succession moving a lot of the operations to the U.S. made me feel like this point in my career, I needed to do something where I really started to make a difference to Canadian companies and start to think creatively about how we keep them here, despite the fact that we don't have the funding, which is not an easy solution. There's no easy mechanism or solution to that. We need to put more effort into thinking creatively of how to get U.S. investors to view Canada as the, the optimal place to have a company. I mean, we have exceptional talent, second to none. The U.S. dollar goes very, very far in Canada for, on a research perspective. The Shred program with CRA, there's nothing comparable in the U.S. that gives that kind of tax advantage for research and development companies. The cost of our FTEs is lower. The cost of benefits is lower, cost of facilities. There's so many reasons to have a company stay in Canada. It's way more economical. And like I say, the highly qualified personnel will produce. No one's going to convince me that the average U.S. scientist is any stronger than the average Canadian scientist. I read a newspaper article about this time last year, might have been the year before, about one of Ontario's larger public service unions investing quite a bit of money into a life sciences portfolio in the U.S. And the thought that went through my mind was, why aren't you doing it here? I don't know if you're familiar with the article that I'm referencing, and I don't want to name names, but it made me angry. Yeah. I mean, I'm familiar with the issues. This is one thing where I find like Quebec, really, their FSTQ, that fund is a labor-based fund and it's always invested in life sciences in the province of Quebec. I know what you're referring to, and you're right. There's this pot of money that could be invested in life sciences here in Ontario, and it's not. It's being invested somewhere else. Yeah, I hope whoever the people that need to be listening to those comments are listening to those comments. Where do you see the Ontario life sciences community today, and where do you think it's heading, and what do we need to get there? Coming off of the pandemic, basically showed life sciences really got us out of this pandemic and it really gave the whole sector a lot of notoriety. People were listening, people were paying attention. I mean, who could have said like 10 years ago that a scientist working on mRNA and, and lipopolysaccharide formulations was going to end up 10 years later with a vaccine that actually worked and, and got us all back and living and knowing to the predicted what. So I really think that the pandemic did a lot to buoy up the image of life sciences with the general public. And riding that wave, the Ontario government's announced its life science strategy. They've made the life science council, like the time is right for Ontario, really, to do some really big things and get the life science sector up on the same level, potentially, as the automotive sector and really get that commercial activities going and keeping companies. We've got so many startup companies, they just need that help as they scale to fully operational companies. And that's where we really, really need to focus. Is our lack of infrastructure the one major thing that's holding us back? I would say it's a lack of infrastructure. It's a lack of mature funding. Funding is really a big part of it. And the secondary effects of lack of infrastructure is that we don't get those other parts of the ecosystem here, you know, as well, like the accounting groups that know how to handle biotech and life science companies, 
audits. We don't get the legal groups that know how to negotiate licenses and file IP. We don't get the CROs. That's what really makes an ecosystem successful is not only the companies, but all the service providers as well. You mentioned that the Ontario government is starting to focus on the life sciences sector and Premier Ford and Minister Fideli, I think, are doing a great job with what they've got on their plates. And it'd be great to see more money dedicated to the sector. But we've got at least a two to three year gap to bridge before we're going to see some significant infrastructure in place. And I'm trying in in my small way to help on the real estate side to usher that along as, as best as possible. One of my favorite questions is, what's the best piece of advice you've been given in your career and who gave it to you? Less is more. The CEO at Payne Scepter, when we were going through licensing deals and financing, give as little as possible, don't over-explain. Because invariably, the more you explain, the more you end up down a rabbit hole somewhere you don't want to go. Don't answer questions that aren't being asked. And that's hard for a former academic, right? We want to give so much information. And that's the hardest thing sometimes in companies is answering just the question and don't give anything more. The same in my industry. What is the thing that you're most proud of to date professionally? I mean, I'm really proud of what we did with Turnstone in their early days. We took a research project and we made it into a company. And that company went on to raise a significant amount of funding and stay in Canada for that period of time. But, you know, like I say, as of now, like it's definitely migrating south of the border. But that was a real, I think, feather in all of our caps is that we really were able to get something out of our research lab into clinical trials and get a lot of money around it, which I had not had that level of success in previous companies. We all have highs and lows in our career and each teach us lessons. Are there any things that come to mind that happened to you in your professional career that you walked away with some perhaps hard-earned lessons? I'd say the demise of Pain Scepter was painful. We had done everything right and the market crashed. It was a terrible time. And we just could not close the series being financing. So you get so passionate about the companies that you're building, right? They become like when you're a baby. And it's really hard to see it go from a high when we had hired up to 45 people. We'd closed 45 million dollars. We were running programs. We had partnerships. We had a successful clinical trial. And then we couldn't raise the funds. And we slowly went from 45 down to six, down to two or three. That was painful. But what it did teach me is that every company I learned from led me to the next company. That's probably where I became pessimistically optimistic is like, I always knew I was going to have another job. Maybe it wasn't imminent. Maybe it wasn't right in my face, but I knew whatever I learned of my previous company was going to serve me in the next one. So don't focus on the loss, perhaps focus on the lesson. Yeah, exactly. We've all got a bucket list. Do you have anything on your professional bucket list or personal that you're hoping to achieve before you hang up your running shoes? It's so funny. The one thing I've never wanted to be was a CEO. I always wanted to be the right-hand person to the CEO, but not the CEO themselves because it was just the pressure of fundraising is a lot. And of course, here I am wearing this hat with a not-for-profit where the fundraising is even tougher. There are times where I think I'd like to do the company's thing again, you know, build it from scratch. Probably not imminently, but there's probably one war in me in some way. <laughs> okay, fair comment. For the younger 
listeners, those in university, perhaps just trying to figure out what path they want to pursue, or they've chosen a path, they've just graduated. Is there any advice you would give in particular to women, but people new to life sciences that you'd like to pass along? Keep an open mind. Like I say, I just fell serendipitously from thing to thing to thing and made a career out of it. When I'm asked to speak to groups about, you know, how I got here, I always put the picture up of a straight line and then a squiggle line. I'm like, I was a squiggle line. I had no plan, no concrete idea of what I wanted to do, but I just kept an open mind. And I always thought hard about what skills did I bring that could be applied in different situations. And I think when you look at yourself in that way, you're you're always being torn. You'll always have a job. I use the baseball analogy with people in my industry who get a little discouraged by failure. And I said, you know what? If you've got a 300 batting average, you're going to the Hall of Fame. That means you fail 70% of the time. So don't be too low when it's not going great. And don't be too high when it's going extraordinarily well. Just try to keep an even keel. Final question. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? For me at Obio, it's coming up with our three to five year strategic plan, kind of like the next great big thing that we're really trying to figure out and just what role we're going to play and really figure out like what it is that the companies need and can we help with that role. I suspect very strongly that Obio is going to be front and center on a lot of conversations going forward and in no small part because of you and your team and the great work that you're doing. And I, I, again, I really have enjoyed this this morning. Thank you so much for making the time. It's been wonderful. Thank you, too. An hour and a half talking about myself is a record for me, I think. <laughs> well, thanks again. That was Dr. Maura Campbell, President and CEO of the Ontario Bioscience Innovation Organization. You can find out more about Dr. Campbell and her team at obio.ca, and you can follow them on social at obioscience. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If of interest, you can follow us on social at LabOccupier, and if you'd like to get in touch with me, I can be reached at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. On a final note, if you like what we're doing, we'll appreciate you telling your friends and promoting us online with the hashtag NGBIdeas. And don't forget to check out www.nextgreatbigideas.com to find out more about Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. Thanks again for listening.